0: Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the Pod Medic, and uh, this is our second try at getting this recorded tonight, and I'm happy (laughs) to say that it seems to be working this time, and I'm not even going to try to be cute, I'm just going to pitch it over to Sam Bradley so we can get this show on the road.
1: So you think I'm going to be cute? I don't know. It's not been a good techie night. We've got a really interesting guest tonight, so we want to get on that. But we got the whole team here, our three meteorologists, and, and Jamie and Joe. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hey, guys. He's, hey, everybody. He's eating ice cream and drinking wine, which I find a little strange, but then I've learned to never be surprised when it comes to Dr. Joe.
2: Dr. Joe is perfect.
1: Uh, weather's been pretty mellow here, but I'm kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, if it's going to. Or are we not going to have any cold weather, Dan, who's on his new phone, so we hope that works.
3: <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think we're working. <laughs> yeah, Sam, for you and... For you in Denver, I'm not sure exactly where we are in this record or near-record snow drought, but it's been unusually warm and mild and without snow or any much precipitation at all out in the Rockies. And it looks like next week it'll get a little chillier, maybe the first chance of some accumulating snow. And good news for the ski resorts by uh, Tuesday, so that's good. A bit of a shift in our pattern, but it's been a little chilly in the east. A few shots of snow in the northern parts, uh, parts of the northeast looks like another snow event for the great lakes and northern plains uh over the weekend into early next week but yeah i think some finally some a little bit more winter weather out in colorado for you sam as we head into next week but it's certainly not overly cold or overly wintry
1: well that will make uh, mr nelson very happy he's sitting there on the top of the mountain waiting for the snow to fall right kyle
4: That's right, Sam. It's uh, definitely not looking like uh, winter around here at all. I mean, up, up high and where there's snowmaking, yes, but on uh, anything except the northern faces of the mountains here, we are uh, very much high and dry here up in the Aspen area. Interesting note, though, with regard to snowfall, as of 3 o'clock uh, Eastern time today, as we're recording, only two states in the United States had a uh, winter weather product. Uh, in effect, uh, one was Alaska. If you can believe that, the other was actually Hawaii, due to accumulating what? snow on the summit of uh, summits of Mauna Loa and Mauna Kea.
1: Yeah, one of them actually is a ski resort. <laughs> believe it or not, <clears throat> so they're probably very happy. Uh, wow, because you know I've been looking here in the Front Range. I've been looking up at you, and I see that what snow is up there just keeps melting. So. I knew that was not a happy month, so, Miss Becky, what's going on with you? Well, hurricane season ended officially officially uh, and it, it, you know
5: it started off, obviously it was a pretty pretty busy first half, I would say, and then it, I'm gonna say it, it got quiet and it stayed quiet. Uh, but there were yeah. 21 named storms total, seven hurricanes, and four major hurricanes. Um, at some point, we should do a, a recap of the 2021 season. It was definitely another devastating one. I, For some reason, this one isn't as seeming, it's not seeming as impactful as the last several years. <laughs> um, although you wouldn't say that to the people who were impacted on the coast, obviously.
0: Well, I can think, you know, the Northeast impact, I think, was something that we could definitely touch on
5: oh for sure
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's a good idea I mean, i'm laughing at joe's who's xbox over there saying it was 21 too many yeah but hey dude, it's still a very busy what season you do, what would you do if there weren't any disasters joe
2: i'd probably be bored but i'd be okay with that
1: Yeah. <laughs> are you wearing out
2: no, no, I'm, I'm good for uh, as long as I need to go, but at the same time, it's kind of nice to uh, have a little downtime.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. So our guest tonight, I love this name, Boose Mutlow, and this guy came originally from England, but has been everywhere else um, in France and Australia and Africa, here in the U.S., working for a number of different Wilderness-related agencies, and I'm not even going to try to get your background there, Moose, because you know it much better than I do. So why don't you tell us about
6: what you're doing and how you got started on all of that? So, well, thanks for having me um, on this evening. Uh, I have lived a vagabond life from uh, my teens, wandering around and finding opportunity. I spent a lot of time in the outdoors. I spent the best part of 20 years as a wilderness guide working in either commercial commercial guiding programs or in personal development programs like Outward Bound. I ended up on the west coast of the U.S. working in environmental education in national parks. And at the same time, I always had this interest in adventuring and going on expeditions. I spent some time in the Arctic and Ended up in search and rescue working with the feds, and that's been the last 20 years. I've worked uh, with a collaboration between the nonprofit I work for, Nature Bridge, releases me to go and work specific uh, search and rescue assignments in and around uh, primarily Yosemite. And then I'm a regional trainer uh, for very specific elements and modules for search and rescue, as well as being a Rescue 3 instructor for Swiftwater Rescue. And I've spent time out in the Kalahari teaching. I was a guide for Outward Bound in Australia. I had a really fun time being a river guide in the south of France and running a beach concession. I worked in social work and spent some time working in a zoo. Pretty much, I've lived my life saying yes to opportunity, and it's been really fun.
1: I can imagine. Didn't you recently do a training in Florida?
6: Yeah, I, I returned to the Everglades where North Carolina uh, Outward Bound School have a base camp. I was an instructor at North Carolina for about a decade working youth programs, health programs, professional development. And I, I had not been to the Everglades for 30 years, and I got the chance to go back and be an instructor on uh, an Outward Bound veterans program. Uh, paddling canoes out on the Gulf of Mexico, on the Outer Islands. And it was a fantastic recharge and reset. And to work with vet- veteran groups, I, the last veteran groups I'd worked for, worked with had been under the Agent Orange program, which was uh, a funding program that worked primarily with Vietnam vets. And to return 30 years later to work with the veterans, gr- veterans group and with more optimism there's a higher level of appreciation for people's service and their need for support uh, when they leave uh, the services but the same problems are out there and the same challenges for them and it's 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 a privilege to go out and spend time with a group that's high functioning and looking for ways to help each other and support, uh, support each other in their healing and in, their, in, in, in coming back into society.
1: And We couldn't agree more with that. That's a topic we are uh, is very fond of. Your full-time job is managing the construction of a $52 million school for environmental science in Yosemite. What do you do there?
6: So I, I I was an education director for for like five years for Nature Bridge, which is the largest provider of environmental science experiences for young people in national parks. Before COVID, we served uh, nearly 30,000 students a year in in different park units around the country, and I moved from education into project management, which was a mixture of compliance design, and then overseeing the construction and some fundraising for this state-of-the-art 224-bed LEED Platinum Net Zero Energy campus that's a home for education in Yosemite. When you think about national parks now, national parks uh, legitimately are looking to remove certain infrastructure. They're starting to think about conservation in a different way, and it was a a real step of confidence by the Park Service to say, "Hey, let's have a school. Let's let's have the next generation of who are going to be look, of constituents of national parks have a home where they can learn about these landscapes and learn about the role of national parks and develop some connection to one of the greatest things that America has to offer, which is the best part of 400 park units uh, in and around the country and scattered around the Pacific."
1: Absolutely, and and you took your COVID downtime and wrote a book, and I definitely want to talk about that. But it just occurred to me, I was going to ask Dr. Joe, who's our certainly our our, our COVID expert. Um, Joe, what's the news on this new variant that now has hit the U.S. in California, as I understand it?
2: Uh, and beyond, actually, uh, it's been identified in four states now, and I'm sure it's uh, in many more that we just haven't recognized yet. Uh, So that's the Omicron variant, uh, first identified in South Africa. Uh, It it has a significantly greater number of mutations than prior versions of this virus. It uh, currently does not appear to be uh, producing significantly greater illness although it does appear to be significantly, and by that I mean like 500 times more infectious. So I I expect that Omicron will take over from Delta pretty quickly, Uh, and what we hope is that it is not uh, a severe illness associated with this uh, uh, new new version of the virus.
1: So... What do you project, although it's obviously very early, how is this going to affect? Are we going to go back into a surge issue or what, or is it too early to tell?
2: Uh, I think we'll definitely see uh, an increase in uh, cases again. We're likely to have another surge of some some proportion. Uh, it's a little early to tell just yet, so tune back in uh, next week or the next as we'll have a little bit diff- additional information. Uh, hopefully, even if we see a uh, another surge, as I really think we will, it will not have too hard an impact on us if the uh, level of illness associated with it is not overwhelming. So fingers crossed there.
1: Do you have a sense of how the current vaccines are protecting us against this one?
2: It currently appears that uh, current vaccines are pretty good still against this Omicron variant. Um, again, it's a little bit early, but the at least the preliminary stuff appears to show that uh, the vaccination uh, status is pretty good. Well,
1: good. That's good to know anyway. Okay, we'll be in touch with this over the next few weeks because it's another ever-evolving thing, fortunately. Um, Kyle, you you could certainly relate to Moose, right? Do you have any questions for him so far?
4: Well... Sam, I, I really uh my interest uh with Moose is uh, really with his uh, family liaison officer program uh that that he designed. And uh that's really what um I'd like uh him to share a little bit on. And uh my my big curiosity really is you know with with that program is like who or what Moose inspired you to develop this sort of training and and share it with others.
6: So uh I have been a family liaison officer in the park for about 20, 20 years now. Um, I, had, I had drifted into it because an office colleague of mine who worked at the park whose husband was a law enforcement ranger said, hey, there's this interesting training coming up and it's a family liaison officer. It's like a four-hour training. Maybe You'd be good at it. Why didn't you go? And I come from a background of, facilitation and some counseling. I've worked in some wellness therapy programs, but a lot of it is about communication and about reading situations and allowing intuition to play out, to listen to those inner voices and think about how to be grounded in human. So I went to the training and it was a chalk and talk. And I was like, this, this kind of makes sense. And I pretty much went on a call out within the matter of six weeks. I was out Dealing with a, an involved tragic death of a young man in the park, and it it fit like I, I come from a technical background in outdoor activities, climbing, uh, boating, caving. I, I I have more than a passing knowledge. I'm a practitioner, and it, there was a good fit with having that level of technical knowledge to back up the ability to simply listen. And be kind. And I, I think the program that I, I started out in had a little bit of spontaneity to it in that it's there aren't many people who are at a family's most crushing moment when every, all their foundation has just fallen away because they've had this tragic news of the loss of a family member. There aren't that many people lining up to do the job, in honesty. Like if you say... Hey, I'll give it a go for the most part. And instant commander's like, great, because they're able to take a step back from the immediacy of that emotional impact and concentrate on the mission. And so, over the next couple of decades, I started actually crafting a training program and bringing in more experiential education type experiences that allowed people to fine tune their skills. And that culminated last year in me. Uh, having less work because as a school, we shut down um, I had less hours. And so I, I wrote my book, When Accidents Happen, which was a handbook to help people in crisis communication, specifically in emergency services. At that moment when you haven't found somebody and a family member says, I'm not hearing anything, I, I haven't got any news, and they're panicking, that's, that's when the family liaison officer is normally delegated to be the direct representative of the incident commander to help that family not necessarily counsel them through a grief process, but to be a kind voice that gives them facts and bears witness to what they're going through.
1: Oh, my God, yes. I can't tell you how important I think that is. Obviously, Kyle does, and I'm sure everybody else. Um, Being disaster workers, um, especially for Joe and I that have spent a lot of time in the field, the saddest part about Disaster work as you hear these horrendous stories of people losing their family in a flood or an earthquake or something else. And, you know, you can fix their boo-boos, but you can't fix that. And by the same token, we've talked quite a lot about the concept of when we, as disaster workers, come home and the families don't really know how to receive us and don't understand that we need some downtime. And like after Ground Zero and Joe was at the Pentagon, it took a long time for us to try and get back into normal society. So I can't think that's important enough. Joe, you have some thoughts on that, right?
2: Yeah, actually, Jamie and I were just uh, uh, chatting together about the Family Outreach Center at the Surfside Condo collapse and uh, the importance of that Um local support system uh and its functionality not only in helping directly with those families and uh finding them a place to live and and other uh activities of daily living but also being a liaison between them and um all the response community and How how important that function was for folks to know what was happening at the site, what their uh, options were for uh, support for a place to live, not only in the immediate future, but in the longer term uh, and that sort of stuff. So, uh, you know, multiple layers of uh, impact there for those families.
1: And Joe, would I be wrong in saying that that was one of the toughest events you've worked, even though many of the others were much more high profile, that this was different in so many ways?
2: Yeah, this this was a very difficult, uh, that was a very difficult uh, deployment for a lot of levels, uh, I- including actually very personally, I had a, a a a personal very close friend who lost his uh, spouse in that, uh, building collapse. So it, uh, it touched me in a lot of
1: different ways. Yes. As I can well imagine. Um, Becky, do you have any thoughts for Moose? Yeah. So I guess similar to
5: what Kyle was mentioning, but I was, I was looking over your website, um, to sort of get prepared for this episode. And I saw the, the psychological first aid, um, and stress continuum training. I, it's maybe a bit of a, off-the-wall question, but I'm curious what the most, or rather the least, what like what's the, the least kind of impactful is the right word, but, you know, we think of psychological first aid, you know, usually in, in major events like the condo collapse or, you know, things like that. So what's the smallest incident that you've ever done psychological first aid for? And the, I guess the reason I ask is because I think it's important that people never feel like Oh, I don't need psychological first aid. This wasn't that big of a deal. When every event is a big deal to somebody, if that right. question makes any sense at all. <laughs>
6: well, it does, and I, I like the 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 offshoot of psychological first aid for me in my work with family liaison is that SISM, a standard SISM based process, was not working for me. The, the idea of this sort of homogeneous group being processed, I wasn't part of that. I had this very intimate profound exchange with traumatized families. And so for me to process what was going on, I was doing that a lot in isolation with a very small peer group. So the thing that I liked about the psychological first aid was it gave me a benchmark for like where I was at, but it also gave me a really good definition of trauma. And the idea of the definition that I use with students and with peer groups is trauma is 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 the force that stops you from living the life you want to live, and so wow. a traumatic event, if it if it's created that hiccup in your routine or in your cycle, it can be very small. It could be that COVID is enormous. COVID has had massive impacts for people traumatically, but then you're going, you're cycling to work, and somebody cuts you off, and you get really scared. That's a traumatic event. And you, and it manifests in the same way along the operational stress guide. The idea of ready, reacting, injured, or critically injured. You, you, you can, you can go into the red from the green end of the spectrum very easily. I sat in a, in a psychological first aid uh, seminar, and I was sitting next to a combat vet who had had profound traumatic experience, but the things that he was, he was manifesting and experiencing. I could identify with it. We got there on totally different pathways. Totally different. Yet we were they were manifesting in the same way. And that that is unifying because it, it actually gives us the common link and the connection to be able to help each other. In a fragmented society where we look at difference and we work from fear, actually those common things are things that can actually bring us together and, and heal. And as a, a, as a proponent of good communication, of keeping talking, of trying to find the way forward, particularly within these challenging times, that stress guide, which came out of combat with the Marine Corps and then has sort of morphed under the work of Laura McGladry to work with specifically responders and, and ski patrol and search and rescue personnel, uh, has been a major game changer for, for everybody in the field. I, I, when you say what's the smallest thing, I mean, it could just be having a bad day and having somebody shout at you can be that trigger because you've built up a whole bunch of stress that's been going before. I mean, at that latter stage of trauma, it's your inability to deal with complexity like where you're withdrawing and becoming isolated because you can't take anymore. So that very small thing, which is inconsequential, is actually the trigger for a much bigger reaction. So for me, I do a lot of work where I, I check in with SAR team members. Or I check in with my peer group to double check and stay ahead of where we're at to maintain a healthy lifestyle, which is one of the keys, but the biggest key is connection. If you have connection you have a better opportunity to be psychologically healthy.
1: Wow, I love that. Dan, any thoughts?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, this is really fascinating. I was going to sort of take this from the weather side of things and just, you know, given your experience, it sounds like uh, across the world in different environments, just wondering if you've had any really, you probably have, but any type of really significant or unusual weather experiences with conditions that sort of stick in your mind?
6: Well, I mean, like, when, you're, when you work in the outdoors, you kind of have disaster. Like, disaster's ever-present. And, uh, and you just have to be a little less terrified than the people you're leading. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I've been evacuated in cyclones in Australia and had massive, uh, just enormous amounts of rainfall in a short amount of period and had rivers come up. And then suddenly, programmatically, the crocodile warnings take a whole new meaning because they're not just in the river, they're in the fields. That's kind of exciting. Uh, In southern Africa, we would get the most amazing, amazing thunderstorms because of the amount of sand that went up and charged the atmosphere. And you're out in the Kalahari and you're like, it's a desert. But then when the rainstorms and the thunder hit, it's there is, you're the high ground. I had a Land Rover. It was the high ground. So you're getting ready for some real lightning action. And then I worked in North Carolina where one of my colleagues was struck by a ground current with lightning, and his group revived him. I mean, it's wow. like it, there are these sort of epics that are out there. But the, but the thing is, we're all living epics. Like anybody who lives in, you know, Tornado Alley out in the Midwest, they're, they're living with that every single day. And I, th- I think that's the other part. Our lives our lives are far more extraordinary than we than we think. And we we live on the edge of disaster a lot. Whether you're in New York and you've got that beachfront property, and then suddenly the hurricane hits, and you're like, oh wow! And suddenly, I, I, I'm insignificant at that moment or the Red River floods out sort of, and the Mississippi floods, you have all these rural communities that have had it happen over and over again. There is deep resilience out there that almost ignores or minimizes what their exposure is to disaster. And and I think we have uh, the sensational element of disaster, which is all about you know, like responding in that initial part, like how do we save lives or how do we scale to be, have people in stable positions? The real story is actually recovery. It's like how do communities recover afterwards? And there are enough stories about that, that display this deep resilience in the human spirit that is able to deal with this upset and somehow magnificently come through it. And I I think that's, that's a lot about trauma as well, is that you, you want people to feel hope. You want people to feel optimism. And life is hard, but there is joy there. And I, I think we as, community, as as individuals and people who work in community and work in these stressful positions, we need to remember to laugh. Even at the darkest day, I try to laugh. I try to have some level of appropriate joy. And it, it that sounds a bit weird because you're like, hang on, this family's had this terrible loss. I, I have sat with families that have regaled me with stories about their crazy uncle, and we have been crying and laughing at the same time because this person was so outrageous. And they've had a, a cardiac arrest and they've passed away. Literally two hours before we're trying to figure out the next steps. but they get to celebrate that person's life. They get to remember them on their terms. I'm not like feeding them lines. I'm not saying this is how we're going to process. You're giving them the floor to define what their grieving process is, and it's giving up control. And in disaster, you kind of try to exercise control where you can, but a lot of times you're choosing where to fight. You're choosing where to put resources. And that's born out of experience and intuition. And those are the things we have to value. It's experience and intuition that comes from a perspective of joy, ultimately, because the laughter is the thing that's going to help us heal. That will get us back into that green zone, that healthy zone of functioning.
1: That is such a great perspective. Jamie, you've been quiet in the background there.
0: <laughs> yeah, and actually, Moose, I'd like I'd like to ask you. You talked a little bit there about resilience, and we have a lot of you know people that are local responders in their communities and, and responsible for disaster preparedness and things like that. And we talk a lot about building more resilient communities. What are some of the things that, that lend towards those communities you've seen that seem to be more resilient than others?
6: I think, well, primary one is connection and the connection is whether there's a shared vision around a local sports team or there's a faith-based initiative that people are attracted to, or there's some identity that gets people out of their homes and off of their computers that that puts them in a position to work in and around each other. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, rural communities have the same tensions that urban communities might have. But when push comes to su- shove, neighbors know they have to help each other because there aren't that many resources out there. So they end up burying the hatchet and kind of getting in there and doing it. Um, I think the other part of resilient communities is to be grounded and not to be, What would the word be to, to not sort of it, it, there's a show called CSI on TV and it, it sort of has these beautiful, pristine um, sets and people solve mysteries in 45 minutes and, It's very neat. And they use technology a lot. And it sort of shows the possibility of technology. And we all know there's a limit to it. We all know that in the face of a giant uh, breaking wave, a tsunami coming in, there isn't much you can do except run to high ground. And I think that we've moved to a position where our resilience is very fragile because we believe that somebody else is going to come or technology will save us. And actually, resilience starts with ourselves. Resilience. In the Western communities, starts with taking responsibility for your backyard and fire hardening them. You don't wait for somebody else to do it. You fire harden it. And you might like having trees on your porch because it's a bit cooler. But you're going to endanger somebody in a fire crew who's going to come and try and save your property. It's like, no, you cut the tree down and you make sure they can defend your property. Um, So resilience. Is also sort of rediscovering our inner strength. And and some of that's just a, a connection to the outdoors, a connection to physical work, a connection to charity. You know, it's, it's reaching beyond ourselves. K- Kennedy, I think it was Kennedy, President Kennedy talked about the idea of this, of our actions being a ripple upon the surface and allowing a distant wave to crash, or uh, a wave to crash upon a distant shore. Like, We have to do these small things in our communities for the greater good. We have to do these things that line up for society's benefit. And that's whether that's having a really good supply of sandbags and a ton of sand that people can utilize to like fortify that flood line. Or it's to have a small pump that allows you to actually start wetting your building down before the fire comes in. Or it's like it's all of those things. It re- resilience. resilience should be a badge of honor for everybody, to say you're resilient. And COVID could, have bu- could build resilience in our communities because we've been through so much. And it's so polarizing in people's view of it. But we've all been through it. It could be a unifier. It could make us better. We can be better.
1: You're the eternal optimist, aren't you, Moose?
6: <laughs> well, I think I think if you I work with young people and like if you sit with young people and you, you start to listen to the challenges they face, the challenges they face are very different from the challenges I faced at fourteen. They're very that they're, they're a world away. They have a they have a, a much longer list. And if I do not have optimism and trust that they will help to find a way forward, then I am useless as an educator and useless as somebody involved in education because what they need is hope. Right. And, and it's, it's as an adult to dwell in what is wrong, what is broken, serves no young person. Right. It crushes them, and it, and the, and when I work in search and rescue, you have hope up until a point, then you have realism, but you have realism from a point that is trying to help. You you're going from rescue to recovery. There's a switch, and you you choreograph that conversation to be respectful and kind, but to to not confuse the message, to make sure everybody understands that. And so it's that clarity of mission, that clarity in communication. And that's that's where we get confused. That makes We're not able to listen.
1: Well, as we wind down here, uh, tell us about your book real quick and where people can find it.
6: So my book is out there, all good uh, booksellers. Um, it's uh, When Accidents Happen, Managing Crisis Communication as a Family Liaison Officer. I have priced the digital version very cheap in the hope that people will sort of buy a couple of them maybe and distribute them out. Um, It's set up to to give a practitioner a reminder of things to do, and it gives somebody starting out a blueprint. And I always say I'm showing a way, not the way. It would be far too big-headed of me to say this is the only way to do something, because it isn't. It's, it's a way, and, it, and it's set up to be adaptive to different jurisdictions and different personalities. It's got training scenarios in it. It's got reflective pieces from me about my experiences. It talks about the impact of the role, and it talks about the value of the role for the instant commander within the ICS and for you as an individual. And it's been a gift. For me, like the idea that at the end of last year that I wrote a book and got it out there and started to have people utilize it and give me feedback and sort of morph it. I mean, that's a that's a pretty good end to a really tough year last year. And so, yeah, that's the book. Well, you
1: certainly made the best of it. And uh, Jamie, will put some links in there for all of our listeners, of which there are quite a few. And uh, excuse me, we'll mention our. Disaster Podcast Group, which we'd love to have you join on Facebook in case people... I'm in there. I just joined it. Oh, yay. (laughs) Good man. And I'm I'm stealing all of Jamie's wrap-up material here, so I'm going to throw it back to him.
0: Oh, you caught me tapping in. I was going to go and see if you if anyone had let him into the group because i if he joined it i have to somebody has to let him in so uh I'll no, do that I'll after do that. the show um uh yeah you know moose its it's great to have you here on the show and and it just uh your your talk about experiential. You know, training and and things like that brings us around to back around to Joe and and all the stuff you do, Joe, with um, Paragon Medical Education Group. You know, your whole focus is about experiential training, bringing in people who've been through things to educate uh, disaster responders uh, about exactly what they can expect um, when they run into those situations that are overwhelming their systems. Um, where can folks find out more about, um, Paragon and what you guys do and how, to, how they can get a customized resource, um, uh, educational resource for their community.
2: Well, thanks Jamie. And thanks Moose. Uh, I absolutely love your very holistic approach, uh, to, to all the aspects that we've talked about tonight. Um, We certainly take a very realistic approach to training, and we look forward to talking to uh, anybody who's interested in uh, educating themselves on everything from disaster management to active shooter uh, and uh, uh, anything else in the uh, response community. They can find us on the web at ParagonMedicalGroup.com or uh, on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group, and they can always reach us through the Disaster Podcast
0: excellent and we just want to thank you again as always for your continued support that helps bring the disaster podcast to people out there Um, so make sure you stop by and and, you know give them a thank you over Paragon because uh, this show wouldn't be here without them for these many years we've been doing this show so uh, thank you again for your continued support Joe Um, Moose where can folks find you Um, we obviously will link to your book and and make sure folks can get that and and find out more about you but is there a website or someplace they can find out more about you
6: Yes, I'm on uh, I'm on Facebook with Moose Mutlow. I'm on Instagram at Moose Mutlow and uh, at www.moosemutlow.com. And there's a bunch of free resources up there as well and an audio guide to being an FLO. I've I tried to really hard to where I could not monetarize so I to actually make it free and make sure that people can have a clearinghouse for resources out there. And I'll be... Uh, Out on the road, training over the next year. Going to be in Estes Park at the Mountain Rescue Association conference in June, doing a pre-conference and a presentation during their main conference.
0: Careful. Joe might snap you up to to have you come and do something for Paragon.
6: (laughs) Absolutely. I, I, I love training. I mean, like, I think that if you're a practitioner and you've got a hand in the game, those are the people who you're the best people to actually sit there and talk about what's going on if you've retired for 40 years and you're still talking about stuff you did 40 years ago it, it's people now it's training is real it's got to be timely and it's got to be pertinent to the moment and i i i love opportunities to train excellent
1: <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, Becky, where can folks find you if they want to track down what you're working on?
5: Yeah, over on Twitter at WX underscore Bex and LinkedIn at uh, Becky DePodwin and the Disaster Podcast
0: Facebook group, as always. Dan, how about you? Uh, the
3: Disaster Podcast Facebook group and on Twitter at WX Depot, D-E-P-O.
4: Kyle, how about you? Well, Jamie, folks can find me on all the social media places under the handle WXKyleNelson. And Moose, uh, thanks again for coming on. And as a, a fellow wilderness educator and responder, uh, your points really hit home for me. So thank you very much. Thank,
6: thank you for the opportunity, Tim. I really, I really enjoyed this and good luck with the, uh, going forward everybody and stay safe.
0: Sam, last but not least, uh, where can folks find you?
1: the place you can find kyle um under sam bradley or sam bradley 11. how about you jamie
0: People can find me under the handle PodMedic in most social media places. I look forward to finding you there. And, uh, of course, over in our Disaster Podcast Facebook group and DisasterPodcast.com. Don't forget, if you go to DisasterPodcast.com, you can subscribe to the podcast directly. There are links right there below the audio player on every episode. So uh, we look forward to you uh, being able to get each and every episode when it comes out. And that's the best way to do it. Uh, Sam, thanks for inviting Moose on. It's it's great to to have him here. what an, what an inspirational uh, topic tonight.
1: Oh, my God, yes. And it's nice to know that disaster can have an upside or create more people. But I think that one of the messages that Bruce gave us that's critically important is trauma is very individualized. What it, may be a trauma for one person for another, and it doesn't matter if it's large or small. It just kind of depends on where you are and why you feel. take care of each other.